It was a year ago uh, that I stood in this pulpit and preached a sermon on the theme of Thanksgiving from Romans chapter 1, which of course is not a typical Thanksgiving sermon, Romans 1, and neither is Hebrews chapter 3 a typical Thanksgiving text. Most preachers might go with a psalm or a proverb or a prayer of Thanksgiving from somewhere in the Bible. But since we've been working through Hebrews these past few times I've preached here, and since I've seen this text as subtle, yet clear Thanksgiving theme, we're going to stick to the book of Hebrews this first Sunday after Thanksgiving and last Sunday before the formal beginning of Advent. In just a moment, we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and as we read these six verses, we will see the writer of Hebrews continuing his theme of Jesus being better, by beginning to explore our Lord's superiority to Moses. Moses is the man the original hearers of this letter would understand to be the most important figure of the Hebrew Scriptures. But we will see in this text that Jesus is even better than Moses. Even as we've already learned that he is better than angels, Jesus is better than heavenly beings, And Jesus is better, we will see in a moment, than the greatest earthly figure of which the Jews could possibly conceive. Jesus is even better than Moses. So with that, and with the theme of gratitude in mind as well, I would invite you to stand with me as we read the first six verses of Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Before we read, let us ask God to help us understand and apply his word. Dear Heavenly Father, your word is true, your word is perfect, your word is holy, and we thank you for it. We ask, Father, as we look at these six verses, that your spirit will come, that it will attend to your word, and that we will apply your word to our hearts and minds according to your great grace to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is the word of God. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who was appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted Worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Please, please be seated. As we consider Jesus this Lord's Day, We do so while anticipating the fast-approaching Advent 
and Christmas season. But before we get there, before we get to Advent and then Christmas, I think it is truly important that we think about how poignant and beautiful it is that providentially we live in a country and a culture where we set aside a day for Thanksgiving, a national holiday dedicated to gratitude. How great is that, right? We still have, even in this increasingly secular culture, a national holiday on which we give thanks to the God of gods for his numerous blessings. In the Godwin household, we are of the impression that not even an inkling of Christmas celebration, whether it's decorations or Christmas movies or music, should be participated in until after the Thanksgiving holiday is complete. We were thrilled that one of our neighbors put up a lawn ornament with a turkey sitting on Santa Claus, holding a sign that said, wait your turn, Santa. This was, uh, this was good in our mind because at least one person on the street gets the importance of getting the order right. One of my children, I won't mention her name, but that kind of narrows it down. One of my children gets animated when people jump the gun on Christmas before Thanksgiving. She even got on me a little bit this past Thursday because I dared to watch It's a Wonderful Life on Thanksgiving Day. Now, in my defense, it was just on TV, and I was waiting for a basketball game to start, so I watched it. I did. And it was glorious. I love that movie. Um, but I get it. There are Christmas, tra Christmas traditions and Thanksgiving traditions, and to combine the two is perhaps, shall we say, a tactical mistake. So we will give thanks to God for the birth of Jesus this coming Christmas, but it seems to me that Jesus, uh, it seems to me that Thanksgiving as a holiday is a perfect way to pre prepare our hearts before preparing our hearts for Advent and Christmas. And so we give thanks today, as we do every Lord's Day, of course, but we give thanks in perhaps a more focused way today because Christmas season starts, well, tomorrow. I guess, I, I know, I know the, real, the retailers want you to think it started Friday, but for our purposes, it starts tomorrow. So let's give thanks for Jesus, and not just his nativity, but for, for what we can learn about him in these six verses. Now there are three things that I have noticed in this text that should help us to do just that. To give thanks for Jesus. And these three things are simple and yet incredibly important, I think. First, we will notice that Jesus is faithful. He is faithful, and for that, we give thanks. Second, secondly, we will notice that in, ver in these six verses that Jesus is glorious. He is glorious. And finally, we will see that Jesus alone has done all that is necessary to save us, such that our confidence and our boasting and our hope is in him and not ourselves. And this is a fact for which we should ever be grateful. So let us consider and be grateful today that Jesus is faithful, he's glorious, and that he saves us by grace alone. First, Christ's faithfulness. The writer of Hebrews begins our passage in verse 1 by saying, Therefore, so as always, we should ask ourselves, what is the therefore, therefore? 
Now, to answer that question, we need to be reminded of what proceeded in chapters 1 and 2. We are being asked here to consider, to think deeply about, to focus intently on Jesus. But why? Well, because we are reminded in chapters 1 and 2 that Jesus is better than angels, as I've already mentioned, and, and he's also better than previous high priests and prophets of old. He is superior. He is a superior and final prophet, and he brings God's final word to us. We even found out in the opening verses of chapter 1 of Hebrews that Jesus is the creator and sustainer of the world. So, of course, he is even superior to heavenly beings, to angels. So what precedes the therefore gives us a clue as to why we should consider Jesus. But so does the phrase that immediately follows the therefore, doesn't it? He calls his original listeners holy brothers. And he points out that they share a heavenly calling. The writer of Hebrews is addressing here the visible church. He is addressing believers, those who have been baptized, those who have confessed Jesus as Lord. And he says they are holy and they share in a heavenly calling. Who makes them holy and who calls them heavenward? Well, Jesus, of course. So why wouldn't we consider Jesus? Why wouldn't we think deeply about him and orient our lives around him? He is all those things we read about in chapters 1 and 2. And he, Jesus, makes us holy and calls us to the heavenlies. This is not an earthly calling. It is a heavenly one. So already here in verse 1, we have every reason to consider Jesus. But there's more. He calls Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Interestingly enough, this is the only time in the entire New Testament that Jesus is referred to as an apostle. Normally, the title apostle is applied to Paul and the original disciples, but here it describes our Lord. The word apostle simply means one who is sent, a messenger ordained for a specific purpose an emissary, an envoy. So Jesus is an envoy, but he's not just any envoy. He's not just any apostle. He is the envoy, the apostle, the final messenger. He is called the final word in chapter 1, and now here in chapter 3, he is the final apostle. And all this before we are reminded of Jesus Faithfulness, which is, of course, the point of point one of my sermon. So in verse two, there it is. Jesus is a faithful apostle, a faithful priest. He is faithful to the one who appointed him as envoy. He is faithful to the Father and his plan to save his elect people. And he's compared to Moses here. We see why Jesus' faithfulness supplants the faithfulness of the Old Testament's greatest figure. We see in verse 5 that Moses is faithful to God's house as a servant. But Jesus is faithful to God's house as a son. And this is a difference that makes an important point of a comparison, comparison between Jesus and Moses as faithful men. Moses was a faithful man. 
We read about that earlier. Jesus is the faithful God-man, the incarnate word. Moses is the messenger, the messenger who who, uh, sent, uh, who would testify of God's law, but also of the coming Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, and he is the Messiah. As a son, Jesus is not just a servant. He is the son of God with all the rights and privileges that attend that status. As a son, or rather as the son, Jesus is a servant, but he is so much more. We know that Moses was faithful. He faithfully led God's people out of bondage. He faithfully brought the law to God's people. He faithfully built God's house and attended to it, as we'll see in a moment. But Moses was still a man. He was a sinner, like you and me. And because of this, he could never be perfectly faithful as our Savior Jesus was and is. You see, Moses was faithful. But his faithfulness had limits as evidenced by the fact that he wasn't even allowed to enter the promised land. You see, Jesus is perfectly faithful. He never sinned. He never stumbled. He never wavered as an envoy for the mission to which he was appointed. His faithfulness knows no bounds. Jesus is faithful. He is faithful in all the ways that angels cannot be faithful. He is faithful in ways the priests of the Old Covenant cannot be faithful. And here we see that he is even more faithful than Moses. Moses, the lawgiver. Jesus is even more faithful than the man who led the Hebrew children out of captivity. Even more faithful than the man who stood against the Pharaoh and raised his staff to defy the Red Sea. Jesus, Jesus the Son is even more faithful the one, to the one than the one to whom all Jews everywhere are instructed to honor from the time they are young children. Brothers and sisters who have been made holy by Jesus and share in the heavenly calling, I ask you to consider Jesus because he is the only truly faithful Savior whom we are called to consider because he alone is perfectly faithful. But not only is Jesus faithful, he is also glorious. Verses 3 and 4. All of us at least have some familiarity with Christ's glory. We know about his virgin birth, his perfect life, his transfiguration, his death for sinners, and his resurrection. But here in verses 3 and 4, the writer shows us as a point of comparison between Jesus and Moses, Christ's glory as the builder of God's house. And really, this is not just an expression of Christ's glory here in these middle two verses, but also the glory of Christ's church. You see, we, you and me, are part of God's house. As men, women, boys and girls who make up the church, we are the temple of Christ that God is building. That is the subject of these two verses. Moses was, humanly speaking, the builder of the Old Testament church. He was the mediator of the Old Covenant, and as such, he was the one who, used, who was used by Yahweh to call God's people out of slavery, lead the establishment of national Israel, including the giving of the law, and build a system of worship, including his tabernacle, uh, God's tabernacle and the sacrificial system. 
Moses was the man God used to build his house. But all these things, the salvation from slavery, the law, the priest, the tent in which God dwelt, were all pointing us to God's greater house, the New Testament people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. And, and this, is, this was the house, who was the builder of this house? Well, of course, it was Jesus himself. Jesus is the foundation of the house along with the prophets and apostles. He is the chief cornerstone of the house. But even more gloriously, Jesus is the builder of the house. Not just the man by whom God is building the house, but Jesus is the builder of the house itself. This is the point of verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. The writer of Hebrews is making a very clear argument here, and the argument is just this. Jesus, as the God-man, as the second person of the Trinity, as the head of the church, is the builder of God's house, with more glory owed him than Moses. Because Moses was just pointing us to Jesus and his church, made up of not just Jews, but also of Gentiles. This is the glory of Christ. He is God. He is the Son of God. And he is building his church that shall never be shaken or torn down. Jesus, as the builder of his house, is an unstoppable architect and builder. What did Jesus say to Peter? And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is building his house, his church, and no one will stop him. This is his glory. This is the glory to which the writer of Hebrews is referring. Jesus is the builder of God's church to the extent that Moses cannot even begin to approach it's worth noting here as well that in verse 4, there is not a not-so-subtle reference to Jesus' deity, which is, of course, another allusion to his glory. We learn in chapter 1 of Hebrews, as I've already pointed out, that Jesus is presented as creator and sustainer. In verse 4 of chapter 3, when the writer of Hebrews says, the builder of all things is God, a parenthetical in your English Bible translations, he is clearing clearly implying that Jesus is indeed God. Why? Because Jesus is building his house, his church, and the builder of that church is God himself. How much more glory can be demonstrated in these two verses? We have Jesus building his church, his glory, and as the builder of his church, he also de demonstrates his divine power. Jesus is not just a little bit glorious. He is all glory in every way our Savior, our Apostle, and our High Priest can be glorious. What is our calling in all of this? What is the expectation placed on us by the writer of Hebrews as it was placed on those who originally heard this sermon and letter? It is to consider Jesus. Consider him. Consider his glory. Consider his faithfulness. Consider and be thankful that we have such a great and awesome Savior, a great apostle and high priest to whom we owe all love and allegiance. 
He is better than Moses, not just because he is the glorious builder of God's house and, and a faithful envoy of the Father, but lastly, because he removes all boasting from the people of his house. It wasn't that long ago, just a month or so, that we were celebrating Reformation Month here at Cross Creek. And part of that celebration, of course, is to focus on what we call the five solas of the Reformation. And the heart of these five solas is grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. In verse 6 of our passage today, we see a glimpse of that in the fact that this passage is summed up by saying we must, quote, hold fast our, confession, our confidence and our boasting and our hope. The solas of the Reformation and grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone remind us that we cannot boast in ourselves. We cannot boast in our good works. We cannot boast in our own efforts at house building. And in verse 6, we are reminded of this truth. According to that verse, where does our confidence in boasting lie? It lies in our hope. And where is our hope? It is in Christ, and it is in Christ alone. Not in angels, not in Moses, not in prophets or priests or kings, but in the final prophet, priest and king, our Lord Jesus. The prophet Jeremiah says it this way, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. The Apostle Paul uh, sums up the same sentiment in the letter to, his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, two verses that most of us find familiar. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. We of all people should be humble. We who name the name of Christ and holding fast to the confession that Jesus is Lord, have no reason to boast, none, except in Jesus. Any boasting we may have is not in ourselves or our abilities or the works we do, but in Jesus and his priestly duties for his people, his faithfulness, his glory. He alone is our boasting and our hope. And for that, we should be profoundly grateful. We don't often think that we should be grateful that we cannot boast in ourselves, but we should. We should be grateful for that. Because to boast in anything or anyone other than Jesus is a prison of our own making. Several years ago, I was talking to my battalion commander about his understanding of the Christian faith and how one gets to heaven. He gave an answer that is very typical of unbelievers. He said essentially that as long as we do enough good works to outweigh the bad things that we do, that God will grade us on a curve and let us into his kingdom. This, of course, is a misunderstanding of God's holiness and the nature of God's grace to us. 
and it's a hellish way to live. How would he know? How would anyone who thinks that way know when they had done enough good works to balance out our sin and rebellion against God and his law? This is a hamster wheel. It's a prison of our own making. And it ultimately leads to despair and destruction. But you see, that is not our hope. Our hope is in Christ. Our hope and our boasting is in him. And we can be truly thankful that we don't have to fall into the trap of thinking we, be, we can be good enough to earn God's favor because our favor is found by faith in Christ and him alone. Several years ago, the Christian band Cayman's Call had a song called Thankful. The song was about the doctrines of grace and based in the verses in Ephesians that we quoted just a moment ago. The refrain of the song was simple and a little strange but incredibly poignant, I think. It went like this. I'm so thankful that I'm incapable of doing any good on my own. You see, when we get a hold of that idea, when we really embrace the fact that there is nothing we can do to earn God's favor in order to be saved, when we, turn, uh, when we, when we in turn get to this wonderful place where we can say, like the writer of Hebrews, our boasting and our confidence is only in Jesus. This is freedom. This is a true understanding of the grace of God. And it will cause us to want to hold fast to Jesus and never let him go. Because Jesus alone is faithful in God's house. Jesus alone is glorious. Jesus alone has succeeded where Moses and priests and prophets and preachers have failed. For this we can and should be truly thankful. I said when I started our, that our culture was increasingly secular, but that despite this, we have this national holiday to give thanks. And that's a good thing. Now, this past week, as, as usual, there was a presidential proclamation regarding our national holiday. And for the first time in our nation's history, the presidential proclamation of thanksgiving did not include a reference to God or faith in any way. But as disappointing as this is, it should not surprise us. Psalm 2 tells us that the nations rage against the Lord and his anointed. And so we should almost expect a lack of acknowledgement by our leaders that our God is the one who deserves our thanks. But this should not cause us to despair. Why? Because we of all people understand that the Thanksgiving we offer this time of year is not tied to how much turkey is on the table or even how many friends and family with which we have the opportunity to gather. These are things for which we should give thanks, of course. But ultimately, our thanks as Christians is tied not to the bountiful physical blessings uh, uh, most of us possess as Americans. Instead, our thanks is tied to the spiritual blessings that God gives us. Our thanksgiving is tied to Jesus and who he is and what he has done for us, his people. Even when everyone around us, including our leaders, don't see this, we do. We understand that Jesus is our faithful apostle and high priest. And for that, we must give thanks much more 
much more than how much money is in our bank accounts. We understand that Jesus is the King of glory and that he is the Lord of the church he is building. And for that, we must give thanks much more than our nation's fortunes or acknowledgement of this fact. And we understand that Jesus has accomplished everything necessary for our salvation and that for our part, our part is only to believe and to trust him with the arc of history. The point being that we, more than all people, we who confess the name of Christ, know that we have eternal realities for which to be thankful. We have a heavenly calling, and it is not tied to whether our national leaders acknowledge our God and his Son. We can be thankful that we understand these things, and we can cling to them by God's grace. So as we end a, national, a weekend of national celebration and thanksgiving and begin a month of focus on the first coming of Christ, we have this great privilege, this great privilege of acknowledging and worshiping the God to whom we can, only we can truly give thanks. We have the honor of considering Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, our great apostle and high priest. So this Lord's Day, May we all consider Jesus and give thanks. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Father, the world around us gives thanks. They give thanks, but not always in a way that honors you. We are thankful, Heavenly Father, that not only... Can we give thanks for your many blessings, material blessings that we all enjoy, food on our tables, money in our bank accounts, friends and family whom to love and to fellowship with, and this church even. We give thanks for all these things, but most of all, we're thankful for Jesus. Help, help us to consider him. Help us to be thankful for him. Help us to recognize his faithfulness, his glory, and that he accomplished all necessary for our salvation. In his name we pray.